the National Archives podcast series. Contemporary specialist Mark Dunton explores perceptions of the year 1966. This talk was recorded on the 23rd of June 2016. So um, I better get underway with my talk, um, England, 1966, the best of times, question mark. Um, this is the full quote which has influenced the title of my talk from A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and I'll just, I'll just read it. Um, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were going all direct. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. What a superb piece of writing. In this talk, I want to show that these sentiments are particularly appropriate for the year 1966. 66, clickety-click. Even the very sound of the year sounds pleasing, does it not? Now, 50-year anniversaries give us a great opportunity to look back and reappraise events in the past... And what better place to do this than the National Archives? I'll be drawing on a selection of interesting documents at various points in my talk. And you'll notice that the title of my talk poses a question. England, 66, the best of times? Now, as I'm going to demonstrate, England, and let's say the United Kingdom as a whole, led the world in so many aspects that year. Pop music, fashion, film, and to cap it all, England, of course, won the World Cup. So why should there be any doubt at all that this was a golden era? Well, this is the very question I'll be exploring. Okay. So I'd like to set the scene a little. Um, during the early to mid-60s, a huge surge of youthful energy impacted on popular culture. The main factors behind this were the buoyancy of the property market and full employment. The post-war baby boomers had disposable income and purchasing power, and a youth-dominated consumer boom was the result, which was fuelled by commercial interests, record companies, clothes shops, and the media. Following the Beatles' breakthrough in 1963, there was an explosion of new groups and singers, a British beat boom with the emergence of the Rolling Stones, The Who, the Kinks, the Animals, the Dave Clark Five, the Small Faces, the Yardbirds, Dusty Springfield, Sandy Shaw, the list goes on and on. Britain was established as at the very centre of the pop world and our acts invaded the, U the US top ten. Now, 1965 had um, already provided some classic records, which I'm very tempted to talk about, but so we must move on. <laughs> but um, I've long held the view that 1966 was the year that everything peaked with pop music. At this time, pre-Sergeant Pepper, the single was still dominant, and a massively talented array of British and US artists were locked 
in an intensive competitive battle to produce the the finest three-minute work of pop genius. Each new single represented a progression from the last, and the lyrics were becoming more complex, the sounds ever more intricate and experimental. As John Savage has rightly argued in his book, 1966, The Year the Decade Exploded, pop was everything in 1966. It was a way of looking at the world. And as he puts it, each new 45 had to be a statement. So this talk will be punctuated from time to time with mentions of particular hit tracks from that year. And I'll be making no apologies for that because the pop music of 66 is such a vital element of that year. And so, we're going to start with a sequence of brilliant singles from early that year. So the year began with the Beatles at the top of the charts, with the double A-side classic, Day Tripper, combined with We Can Work It Out. The latter, a particularly fine example of a Lennon-McCartney collaboration, combining McCartney's optimism with Lennon's sense of troubled urgency, as in, life is very short, but there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. Very tempted to sing it, but I don't think I will. Uh, And then, this was then toppled from the number one slot by Keep On Running by the Spencer Davis group, which, with its heavy bass lines, had definite soul influences. And I've simply got to mention here that it reached number one around the time that my amazing sister, Sarah, was born, who's here with us today, (laughs) along along with my mum, and they've made it all the way from Tunbridge in Kent over to Kew, despite all the travel difficulties, so I'm very honoured. So, while... Now we move on to February, and this lady had a massive hit. Yes, Nancy Sinatra with These Boots Are Made For Walking. Uh... Plenty of uh, attitude there, very sassy. Um, I personally love the descending bass lines on that record. And lyrics such as the ones we see here, I just, I just love them, where you know, she sings things like, uh, I just found me a brand new box of matches, yeah. And what he knows, you ain't had time to learn. It's just great stuff. This memorable, wonderfully camp record brought cheer to the nation during a dull and wet February. I know it was because I've double-checked what the weather reports were like. (laughs) We move on. Um, On the 4th of February, the Rolling Stones released 19th Nervous Breakdown, an exhilarating, fast-paced number, um, and the lyrics conjure up the picture of a spoilt debutant or uh, a rich girl who's on the edge of uh, falling apart. Jagger alternates between disdain and sympathy for her. It's a, it's a funny mixture of that. that. But uh, absolutely fabulous lyrics, as shown in this example here. Your mother who neglected you owes a million dollars tax, and your father's still perfecting ways of making sealing wax. They're just brilliant. How did you come up with a lyric like that? Fantastic. <laughs> now, you know, this incredible array of records that came out at this time just continues because on the 4th of March 66, The Who released Substitute, a powerful and angry record about identity crisis where nothing is what it seems to be. I was delighted that it came on the radio when I was just listening uh, to the radio last night actually. Um, Sounds very urgent, it's got sharp biting lyrics 
and it, um, it features a, a heavy bass guitar solo by John Entwistle. According to legend, uh, John Entwistle sw simply switched up the volume on his bass to maximum when they were recording it, and um, the sound engineer couldn't actually reduce it down afterwards, so that kind of bass, that strong bass solo stayed. But you can see from these examples from early 66 what John Savage means when he says each new 45 had to be a statement. And what a terrific image of them. Pete Townsend sporting a pop art Union Jack jacket. And while we're on the subject of fashion, in March, April of 66, the Kinks scored a massive hit with dedicated follower of fashion. It was a send-up of a young trendsetter who flits from shop to shop, just like a butterfly. And it's Ray Davis, leader of the Kinks, satirising the crazy nature of consumerism. But it also perfectly reflected what was going on in Britain's fashion revolution. When people think of 60s fashion, one name in particular springs to mind, Mary Quant. Now, Mary and Alexander Plunkett Green whom she was going to marry, opened the Bazaar Boutique in the King's Road in 1955. And she wanted, in her own words, clothes for being young and alive in. Quant developed what became known as the Chelsea look, using amazing new variations of polka dots and stripes. Short skirts were in. The look was bright and informal, associated with youth and carefree adventure. She also popularised the, the famous Vidal Sassoon cut, the short and neat bob. Now, the look of the mid-60s used... They were very keen on black and white designs influenced by pop art and geometric shapes. Um, as we can see from this wonderful example here um, of Diana Rigg as Emma Peel in The Avengers. I mean, what a sensational look. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I just... Love those white boots. I mean, I mean, it's just superb, isn't it? Um, and the emphasis at this time was on boldness and modernity, and increasingly more adventurous materials were being used. PVC, shiny plastic, silver, and sometimes with the design, there could be space age elements. Of course, the space age was really, you know, taking off around this time in the mid-60s. Uh, and so the use of unusual fabrics was reaching a bit of a peak by 1966. Twiggy took the modelling and fashion worlds by storm in 66. Um, she was only 16 at the start of the year, a schoolgirl from Neesden, I believe. Um, and she enjoyed a sudden, massive fame when the Daily Express dubbed her the face of 66. She had a very boyish look, as we can see here, very striking eyes, uh, and makeup was an important element of the look. Uh, heavy eyeshadow, false eyelids, and lots of mascara. Now, I know from looking at the files that actually uh, government departments were really quite happy to lend support to the British fas fashion industry, as they often did when they had these big. British fashion shows abroad. And, um, you know, that, that, so the Board of Trade could get involved, the Treasury, and uh, even Foreign Office diplomats were happy to provide assistance to, to our fashion shows abroad. Uh, as in the case of this uh,
British fashion show in New York, as reported by the Daily Telegraph. And uh, it starts off with a quote from uh, Mr. Eddie Moss. He's a, a big American buyer. Um, and, you know, he says, uh, thank heaven you didn't send us a whole lot of oldie-worldy traditional clothes, suede patches and all that garbage. We come to you for the young look, for pace and forward fashion. What's more, your young look has saved our junior fashion market. I'm not sure I, I, whether I should have done that accent. <laughs> Thank you. I did wonder whether I should have done that accent, but I have. Um, and the, all the enthusiasm continues here because you've got um, a further quote here. Um, one buyer of teenage fashions eyeing the British model's textured stockings and basket weave boots scored off her own customers. They love the short skirts, but would insist on wearing plain nylons with them. Now I'll tell them what you're showing here. They're mad about anything British. All they want, all want to look like Gene Shrimpton. Well, Gene Shrimpton, yes, the shrimp. Yeah, one of the world's first supermodels. And in a sense, she popularized the miniskirt. And I believe it was this picture here taken, uh, it was maybe taken at Ascot. I'm not quite sure where it was taken. But I think it was this picture here. You know, it caused a sensation at the time and started a real trend for the sort of miniskirt. And perhaps even the fact that she wasn't wearing a hat was quite revolutionary in a sense as well. So Carnaby Street became closely associated with the notion of swinging London. And there was a trend towards more adventurous menswear. John Stephen was an early pioneer of this. Striking colours and unusual fabrics... Shirts of bright colour, paisley designs, modish and military jackets became all the rage. And the idea of the dandy, the peacock figure, became in vogue. So that is a picture from our collection, and that's from the Central, of Office, Central Office of Information, which was obviously keen to document you know, the colourful kind of scene in Carnaby Street at this time. And um, in 1966, Carnaby Street really kind of peaked in terms of fashion creativity, before the tourists invaded. <laughs> um, but the myths around swinging England were, were quick to develop. By 66, men's hair was growing longer, um, and you could begin to see the influence of the drug-taking culture on popular culture. Things were beginning to melt and blur, and the word psychedelic was beginning to gain currency, and there were some interesting new sounds to reflect this. And an early example was Shapes of Things by the Yardbirds, which some of you may know, um, released on the 24th of February, with its philosophical and questioning lyrics, Eastern-sounding vibes, and a guitar break from Jeff Beck, which sounded rather like a sitar. But leading the whole pack, of course, were the Beatles. And it's an interesting little local connection, in a way, because on the 20th of May, 66, the Beatles came to nearby Chiswick House to make a promotional colour film for their next single, Paperback Writer, B-Side, Rain. And, uh, you know, Paperback Writer featured a heavier sound for them and a strong sense of urgency with, with uh, images in the lyrics coming thick and fast. Rain was highly experimental and a sort of uh, stream of consciousness in which the Beatles were, to some extent, painting with sound on that. And uh, on the fade-out of, the, the, uh, fade of that record, the opening lines of the song were played backwards. It can be argued that this 
marked the beginning of rock music. There is a case, to, I think, to argue this. Um, so barriers were being broken in terms of music, musical creativity. They really were the height of cool at this time. And in August, they would release the album Revolver, which broke further new ground in terms of musical creativity. But I return to the theme of the swinging 60s. And even this little ditty from the American country singer Roger Miller, he had a big hit with this in 66, um, which sort of reeled off sort of postcard snapshot visions of England making even these traditional images sound strangely with it. (laughs) By the mid-60s, the notion of the new meritocracy was well established, with the breaking down of barriers between the classes, certainly at least within the circle of movers and shakers within London. Photographers such as David Bailey from the East End and Terence Donovan, uh, yeah, he was from the East End, they, they came to prov- prominence and they captured, they really helped to capture the swinging London culture. And the photo of David Bailey prompts me to mention the film Blow Up from 1966, a British-Italian film directed by Michelangelo Antonioni about a fashion photographer played by David Hemmings, who some, some believe it was a bit based on David Bailey, you know, Uh, Anyway, this fashion photographer, played by David Hemmings, believes he has, by complete chance, captured a murder on film. That's the kind of essential part of the plot. Uh, But it's it's an interesting film. Yeah, it certainly is. But to reinforce the point about the new meritocracy still further, there was the rise of working-class actors, such as Michael Caine, with his celebrated Cockney accent, and Terence Stamp, who... Also, he hailed from the East End. In the new meritocracy, East End photographers and artists mixed with debutantes and aristocrats, trendy discotheques and clubs such as Annabelle's and the Scotch of St James's sprang up at a fast pace in London and elsewhere. This is the famous Time magazine cover on London, the swinging city. The main article was entitled, You Can Walk Across It on the Grass, which was a reference to London's extensive parks (laughs) rather than anything else. (laughs) Um, Written by, uh, I can not pronounce his name, written by Piri Howlast. It was very much aimed at, at American tourists and was written in a sort of breathless, gushing style. Um, I'll give you a quote. Um, In a decade dominated by youth, London has burst into boom, into bloom. It swings. It is the scene. This spring, as never, never before in modern time, London is switched on. Ancient elegance and new opulence are all tangled up in a dazzling blur of op and pop. The city is alive with birds, in brackets, girls, and, and beetles buzzing with minicars and telestars pulsing with half a dozen separate veins of excitement. Now, this vision of London propagated by this article was an exaggerated fantasy. Um, Now, of course, it has been said that the swinging scene was the domain of just a couple of hundred people in London and that the provinces were largely untouched by it. 
But I, th I think you can go too far down that line um, because, okay, the great majority of teenagers were not able to enjoy the swinging lifestyle. There were limits to their disposable income. Um, however, um, it should be remembered that other cities had their scenes of boutiques and clubs and local pop groups too, in Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, and several others. And also, it's the point that the excitement and the novelty of what was going on was being communicated to the nation and amplified by the national press, pirate radio, and pop programmes such as Ready, Steady, Go and Top of the Pops. Um, although it is important to note, um, actually, that, uh, you know, as my friend Mark has mentioned to me, that Ready, Steady, Go did not receive uh, totally no national transmission. Mm. So, but anyway, I would argue that the impact of the social revolution was felt outside London, even if it was more of a kind of background noise for many people whose priorities were, say, raising a family, holding a steady job, and paying the mortgage. And I would also just say, you know, even if the swinging scene was the domain of a couple of hundred people in London... Well, look what excitement they generated. That's, my, that's really the point I'm making. Um, now, you can see on this cover uh, that the film Alfie is being uh, advertised in lights there. And that film with starring Michael Caine was a big smash hit in 66, which brings me neatly onto the subject of film. And um, by 66, there was something of a boom, a boom in uh, filmmaking in this country even if most of it was being financed by American money. And we've got here some Board of Trade files about support for the British film industry um, because in '66, the future of the National Film Finance Corporation, which gave government grants to British films, this was being debated. You know, it was very much, of course, from the angle of can we afford to keep giving these grants, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this is just a, a quote from a, a review from 65, actually, but it does, it is relevant, because it says, um, overall, British film production is now at a high level. It is increasingly being financed by American capital and taking the form of large-scale productions which require access to the U.S. market if costs are to be covered. The scope for large losses or profits is greater than ever before, which makes, yeah, okay. Um, so there's the point there, you know, about the, uh, the film industry. And it was recognised that it was US finance that was keeping British studios, stars and technicians busy in the mid-60s. And you can see in the files, there's an interesting debate going on about the effect of all this on British culture and the danger of films ceasing to be recognisably British in nature there's a fear that the pool of the, the, the sort of North American revenues will prompt producers to aim their films at that audience. However, um, it's pointed out by the Film Production Association of Great Britain that it was American companies who financed such films as Lawrence of Arabia, The Knack, Alfie, Born Free, A Man for All Seasons, Goldfinger and Thunderball. And all of these films had a large element of that hard-to-define element of Englishness or Britishness, if you will. Thunderball opened worldwide in December 65 and was the biggest worldwide cinema attraction of 66. And spy-related entertainment was very big at this time. Talking of which, um, American imports were an important feature on British television and The Man from U.N.C.L.E. was a huge hit on both sides of the Atlantic. 
the two key characters, um, you may, some of you may recall, um, are secret agents Napoleon Solo, who was American, and he was played by Robert Vaughan over there. And then uh, you also had Ilya Kuryakin from the Soviet Union, played by David McCallum, who became a pin-up, a pin-up heartthrob for many. And it also boasted an incredibly exciting theme tune. But there was also some popular homegrown material on our TV screens. And when it came to spy-related stuff, we had Danger Man featuring Patrick McGowan as secret agent John Drake, which also had a superb theme tune, very groovy. In fact, I think often the theme tunes were more exciting than the programmes themselves. (laughs) While we're on British television, um, not only but also brought us the comedy genius of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and the controversial series Till Death Is Do Part began its first run on the 5th of June 66, dealing with racial and political issues. A typically happy Christmas scene there. <laughs> um, Alf Garnett, played by Warren Mitchell, was a working-class Tory who got very excited about football and politics. Talking of which, uh, what was the political situation at the time? So, the October 1964 election had returned Labour to power under Harold Wilson, and despite a majority of only four seats, initially the new government was reasonably successful in projecting itself in terms of technological and social progress. But... Economic difficulties kept bubbling up, and during 1965, by-election losses reduced the government's majority to a single seat. However, in March 66, Wilson took the gamble of calling another general election. The main theme of Labour's campaign was, you know Labour government works, shown here. And Wilson argued that the Labour government had made a great start and now needed a solid mandate to finish the job. Ben Pimlott, Wilson's biographer, writes, If the 1966 election was less exciting than its predecessor, this was largely because in 64 Wilson had generated excitement by being on the attack, whereas this time he was defending, and Heath, that's Edward Heath, uh, was scarcely his equal. The result always looked like a foregone conclusion. Wilson was a confident and witty performer at party rallies and on TV. The general election result was a great victory for the Labour Party, and Wilson now had a majority of 97 seats. However, this didn't mean that everything in the garden was rosy at, at this time for Harold Wilson. Far from it. One highly problematic issue was US involvement in Vietnam. Now, just a very quick bit of, in a nutshell background to the Vietnam War. So, the French left Vietnam in 1954, and it was divided into a North Vietnam, 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 which was ruled by Ho Chi Minh, the communists, and a South Vietnam, which was in the hands of anti-communist factions. And by 1961, the Northern communists had made huge inroads into South Vietnam through the Viet Cong, And the US, concerned about stopping the spread of communism, responded with ever-expanding military involvement. 
In the early 50s, Wilson was very critical of American policies on Indochina, and in 1954 he announced, we must not join, we must not join with, nor in any way encourage, the anti-communist crusade in Asia, whether it is under the leadership of the Americans or anyone else. However, once in office, Wilson appeared to give support to the US intervention in Vietnam. So when American planes bombed North Vietnam, North Vietnam in 1965, Wilson told the House of Commons that he wanted to make it absolutely plain that his government gave its full support to US policy against communist infiltration in Vietnam. And in July 66, President Johnson, at a lunch with Wilson in Washington, proposed a toast to, to Wilson, comparing his courage with that of Churchill in the Second World War, which didn't go down too well with the Conservative Party back here. These cosy relations with the US and Wilson's apparent support for US policy incensed many people on the left, even though Wilson made several attempts to act as a mediator to try and find a peaceful solution to the conflict, attempts which came to nothing. The US escalated the uh, bombing of Vietnam, 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 I've got a problem with that word, um, in late June 66. Now, this particular image is from a Metropolitan Police file held here, and it's of an anti-Vietnam Vietnam demonstration in Grosvenor Square. Um, but marches and demonstrations about Vietnam, Vietnam began at an earlier stage. You know, they were certainly underway by 65, but I think you know, the earlier demonstrations would have been more orderly than this. Um, but you can see, you know, there was quite a lot of protest going on in this period. But the bottom line on all of this was that even if he did receive a good deal of flack at the time for his pro-American stance, Wilson kept British troops out of, Vietnam, out of Vietnam, which many commentators regard as his greatest achievement. But while we're on the subject, I'm just doing a, a very slight diversion, which isn't a diversion in a way, um, because in the late 1980s, an American drama series on CBS, which was also shown over here, some of you re may remember, called Tour of Duty, or Tour of Duty um, about an American infantry platoon in the Vietnam War, used Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones, released May 1966, as its theme tune. And with its bleak lyrics about depression and Brian Jones's droning sitar, it was the perfect choice to accompany hellish images of Vietnam. And this record is, you know, you could argue it's one of the most nihilistic ever made, uh, but it's certainly one of the darker tracks of 66. Uh, of and while we're on the subject of the Rolling Stones, also that year, the Stones produced Under My Thumb. And if you can just put the misogynistic lyrics to one side, which to some extent reflect the, the kind of attitudes of the time, musically, it's absolutely superb. Um, Philip Norman, referring to the band's album Aftermath, wrote about this track as follows. He said, um, most evocative of all was and still is Under My Thumb, with its marimba notes circling downward to a strange potpourri of electric keyboard, asymmetric drum brushes and off-key guitar. One can almost see the King's Road, the white Correge boots, the bistros and bric-a-brac. I love it. But moving now to the summer of 66, and the most evocative record of all was this one, Sunny Afternoon by the Kinks. And Ray Davis 
um, of the Kinks has explained that this started off as a topical song about the new taxes that the Labour government was bringing in to relieve the wealthy of their hard-earned cash. And, of course, that included pop stars as well. Um, but Ray Davis didn't want to be... Uh, how can I put it? He didn't want to be too pronounced about that aspect, you know. Um, so he turned the narrator of the song into a sort of um, upper-class waster who, uh, from whom his girlfriend had fled telling tales of drunkenness and cruelty, leaving him to sip on his ice-cold beer, lazing on a sunny afternoon. And with its sing-along music hall elements and its plodding, descending chords and its mixture of melancholy combined with a sort of strange contentment, um, this was the big record of the summer. Released in June, it reached number one on the 7th of July, just as England were preparing for their first World Cup match. Oh, yes, the World Cup. Yes, I bet you thought I'd never get round to it. Well, the drama surrounding the World Cup that year began early, on the 20th of March, 66, to be precise, when the Jules Rimet trophy was stolen while on display at a stamp exhibition in Central Hall, Westminster. The theft was announced to the press and a huge amount of newspaper coverage then followed. Now, on the day after the theft had taken place, this man, Joe Mears, the chairman of the Football Association and chairman of Chelsea Football Club, received a phone call from a man who would not give his name. He told him to expect a parcel, which would be of interest to him. On the 23rd of March, this parcel duly arrived at Joe Mears' home it contained a letter demanding £15,000 for the return of the World Cup and the removable bowl from the top of the trophy. And this is a copy of the ransom note. And it really does have some pretty villainous content in it. Um, you know, uh, just to give you a flavour, um, so he's saying, you know, first, if the press or police are informed of this, the cup will go into the melting pot. Um, and uh, da, 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 da. if you agree with my instructions, so he's, he's demanding £15,000. It's basically demanding money with menaces. Um, you know, he's saying, if you agree, follow these instructions. Insert in Thursday's evening news personal column, willing to do business, sign Joe. <laughs> so, you know, otherwise, I'll assume it's one for the pot. <laughs> So, um, Joe Mears ignored this warning and, <laughs> uh, and, and met officers from Scotland Yard at FA headquarters and the police advice to him was, don't pay the ransom. Instead, what we'll do is we'll make up a briefcase with banknotes visible but with paper underneath the notes to create the illusion that the money is there. Now, as requested by this, this uh, charming ransom note... Joe Mears published a note reading, uh, willing to do business, Joe, uh, in the Thursday edition of London's Evening News. I love all this stuff. It's great. Um, on Friday the 25th of March, Detective Inspector Buggy and Detective Sergeant Wilson go to the Mears' house, taking with them the briefcase which represented the £15,000. Joe Mears was confined to bed, suffering from angina. So, the officers fitted an amplifier to the telephone so that they could hear 
any conversation. And when Jackson, as the villain called himself, rang, acting on the officer's instruction, Mrs. Mears told him that her husband was ill, but that a trusted friend of the family, Mr. McPhee, who was really Detective Inspector Buggy, would act for her husband. So Jackson then instructed Inspector Buggy to meet him in Battersea Park to arrange for the return of the World Cup in exchange for the money. And this is an extract from the record of the phone conversation. So this is uh, the sort of, you know, the Inspector Buggy, I think, um, you know, just reporting back on the conversation. He said, how old are you? I said, 50. The man said, Mrs. Mears said you were 35. I said, she's flattering me. <laughs> he said, that's all right then. We don't want any young men with the wrong ideas. What are you wearing? I said, a dark suit, white shirt and blue tie. He said, right, when you get there, get out of the car, then get back in again. No tricks now or it's off. So it's all rather kind of comical, but the, um, the rendezvous goes ahead and Jackson, real name Edward Bletchley, gets in Buggy's car and acting on his instructions, Buggy drove to Kennington where the cup was going to be exchanged. Bletchley was quite chatty with the inspector. You know, really, he was really quite upbeat, you know, chatting away with him. Um, but then he became suspicious <laughs> of a flying squad fan, <laughs> which which was tailing them, which was being used to follow them. It's a bit obvious, isn't it? Um, and in the end, uh, Betchley made a run for it. You know, he said, oh, I'm off, you know. And, um, but he was chased on foot by Buggy and uh, detained and arrested. But the cup was not recovered during this episode. Um, during the next 48 hours, intensive searches were made at the houses of Betchley's known associates. And then... On March the 27th, this happened. This is the witness statement of David Arthur Corbett, who was a Thames lighterman of... That's a, you know, a, a role we don't hear much about nowadays, of Upper Norwood, South London. And you know, he's saying here, uh, on Sunday, March the 27th, I was going out of my flat in the evening. I took the dog with me, and as I got to the gate, I called the dog back to put on his lead. As I bent down to do so, he sniffed into a bush there. That brought my notice to a parcel lying there. It was wrapped in ordinary newspaper and tied tightly round the centre. I picked the parcel up. It struck me that it was very heavy. I tore some of the paper off from one end and I saw two plain plaques. Then I tore further and realised it was the Jules Rimet Cup. This cup, Exhibit 4. I looked... Uh, so, And then, yes, it's referring then to the photograph of the cup, partly contained in the wrappings as I found them. And... Here it is. Um, and, you know, with these newspaper wrappings still clinging to it, it does look like a rather forlorn kind of item in this context. But, of course, it is. As we all know, it's a very beautiful trophy. Uh, so Corbett um, collected the £3,000 reward. Um, now, the sad note to relate here, though. It's sad to relate that Joe Mears died of a heart attack on the 30th of June '66, just two weeks before the World Cup began. The stress caused by this episode may well have been a factor. But, on a lighter note, David Corbett's dog, Pickles, became, <laughs> became the hero of the hour. He won um, a year's supply of free dog food <laughs> and a medal from the Canine Defence League 
He went on to appear in several TV shows and even a feature film. He really was, he was celebrated. Now, when it comes to the World Cup, uh, Dominic Sandbrook makes the point that back in the 50s and even the 60s, the World Cup was not yet the enormous ritual of passion and patriotism it would become. And at the beginning of the 60s contest, the 66 contest, I should say, even though it was being held on home soil, by all accounts there was little sign of World Cup fever amongst English supporters and little to be seen in the way of bunting outside houses. England's first three matches, it has to be said, were not particularly inspiring. But interest in the World Cup started to build with England's quarter-final against Argentina on the 23rd of July, which was um, a very bad-tempered match, and there was a great deal of fouling going on. Uh, the Argentine captain, Antonio Ratin, was sent off. England triumphed with a header from Jeff Hurst, winning 1-0. Alf Ramsey, the England manager, gave a television interview afterwards and said, we have yet to produce our best football and this best is not possible until we meet the right kind of opposition and that is a team that comes to play football, not to act as animals. This caused tremendous offence to Latin America and there was diplomatic fallout as we can see in the files. So um, what we've got here is an extract from a diplomat at the British Embassy in Buenos Aires back, writing back to the Foreign Office Department and um, he's saying, you know, the Argentine defeat at the hands of the British, the British <laughs> football team uh, in the semi-finals of the World Cup tournament on the 23rd of July gave rise to a wave of anti-British feeling amongst football fans, the effect of which was felt throughout the country even the more balanced newspapers commented that the World Cup had been snatched from Argentina's hands by the unfair decisions of a German referee whose, whose appointment had been part of a blatant conspiracy to defraud the South Americans and keep the cup in Europe. It was inevitable that the more sensational papers, along with the writers of many rude letters we received, should link the Falkland Islands with the, fo with the football cup. The, the Falkland Islands being mentioned even then. The inventors of the gentleman's agreement and fair play had perpetuated a double theft, and much more in this vein. Yeah. Uh, so this is the diplomat dryly reporting things back. But the general, you know, when you look at the files, the general Foreign Office view was, well, we're just going to have to write this out. You know, let's not do anything else to antagonise them, you know, sort of thing, and uh, this thing should blow itself out. But it is interesting that, uh, you know... A World Cup can have diplomatic consequences, shall we say, in this way. Back to the narrative, and England went on to beat Portugal 2-1 in the semi-final on the 26th of July, which brings us to the final on the 30th of July. Now, England was certainly in the grip of World Cup fever at this time, and the weather was warm and sunny that day. Uh, notice that there were hardly any St George's flags to be seen at all then. Uh, the Union Jack was treated as being equivalent to the English flag. Rather than give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of the match, which is a very well-trodden ground, I thought I would read you an extract relating to it from the autobiography of Ray Davis of the Kinks, entitled X-Ray, because it's a very evocative piece of writing. So, he, so Ray Davis writes as follows... Sunny afternoon was still in the English charts and we all somehow felt that we were on a winning streak. 
This included the English soccer team. The day England played Germany in the final, the kinks were due to appear at an open-air festival in Exeter. But at three o'clock on that famous Saturday afternoon, we were all assembled around the television in my living room, and we were not going to leave until we knew the result. We had just started to get into the car, as England were leading 2-1, when Jackie Charlton gave away a free kick just outside the English penalty area. John Dalton, or Nobby, as he had been renamed by Mick Amory, the drummer, dragged us back in the living room as Germany equalised. This meant extra time, another half an hour. We would not be on stage at the scheduled time if we did not leave right away. But we were determined not to go until the final whistle. Davis continues. History tells us that when Jeff Hurst... Sorry, I'll start again. History tells us that Jeff Hurst scored two goals for England, but even when the BBC commentator Kenneth Wilsonholm uttered the immortal words as Hurst ran and scored in the final seconds, some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Even at that moment, the Kinks insisted on, on staying to watch the victory parade and cheered the other Nobby, whose name... Was, whose last name was Styles, as he danced around the pitch at Wembley with the World Cup balanced on his head. I looked over at our Nobby. He had tears in his eyes. Patriotism had never been so strong. We were all war babies. We had all seen Hungary beat England 6-3 at Wembley when we were at primary school. In the early 60s, in fact, Ray gets his dates a bit wrong here, but never mind. In the early 60s, we had heard Harold Macmillan say to the country, you've never had it so good, while I watched my father walk to the employment exchange. On the soccer pitch, Bobby Charlton buried his head in his hands as he fell to his knees and wept on the English turf. In an emotional moment, I felt like millions of others watching on television. I wanted to be next to him to help him to his feet. England had won the World Cup, and the Kinks were number one in the charts. Well, actually, it's a bit of poetic license by Ray there, because um, Sunny Afternoon had gone to number one uh, on the 7th of July, 66, remained there for two weeks. By this time, it had actually been toppled from that position, but look, I think we can allow him a bit of license, you know, OK? But it's a nice, it's a nice piece of writing. Um, the Kinks didn't get a very good reception, I'm afraid, when they finally arrived to play their gig at Exeter several hours late. <laughs> Bobby Charlton's face in this shot captures his exhaustion, elation and emotional reaction. England were on top of the world. I mean, a truly wonderful picture, this. I know it's very familiar, but when you look at it, you've got the heroic captain, Bobby Moore, holding the trophy aloft and those classic red shirts with no, no advertising on them you know, it was before those days, you know, it, oh. um, with the badge of the free lions, these have truly and rightly become iconic. So, of course, London, well, the whole country went mad, of course, with elation, and people, you've seen film of people dancing in the fountains of Trafalgar Square that night. Here's the Sunday Mirror's coverage um, the next day, Golden Boys, and you can see the England players greeting the crowds from the balcony of the Royal Gardens Hotel in Kensington, but look also at the interesting byline on this front page. World bankers, please note, Britain's reserves went up yesterday by one valuable gold cup. <laughs> now, this seems a rather odd note to strike. So what was that all about? So to find out, we have to backtrack a bit to the 12th of May. 
On that day, the Cabinet met to discuss the prospect of a strike by the National Union of Seamen, the NUS. And I'm not going to go into the details of the dispute between the NUS and the government, and well, the NUS and their employers. Suffice to say, it was about pay and hours, essentially. And uh, the Labour government had a voluntary incomes policy in place, which had been requested, really, by the US when they helped to shore up the pound during a sterling crisis in 65. And the NUS demands would have meant that the government's pay norm would have been broken. The trouble is that a strike would mean a major disruption to British maritime trade. And this was a big deal because um, Britain was a great deal more dependent on the importation of foodstuffs and materials by sea in those days before airlines took more of a role with freight and also, of course, before, long before the Channel Tunnel. The government decided to, uh, to tough it out. I mean, you can see you know, the, in this quote from Cabinet Minutes, Cabinet Minutes held here, a strike would cause widespread physical dislocation. About half our exports and nearly half our imports were carried in United Kingdom ships. Um, the government decided to tough it out and resist the union's demands, and Harold Wilson and James Callaghan, who was the chancellor at that time, hoped that their resolution would be applauded by international investors and therefore reinforce the position of the pound. But it didn't quite work out like that. Um, on the 16th of May, the strike began and the pound fell quite dramatically and the Bank of England had to intervene to shore it up. The government kept a careful watch on the ports and I, I gather that uh, certainly at one point the strike pretty much paralysed the docks. On the 23rd of May, Wilson declared a state of emergency, shown in this extract from Hansard, uh, which gave the government various powers to ensure the, that the essentials of life continued to be provided, you know, powers to relax restrictions on road transport, price controls, possibility of assistance from the armed forces was kept in reserve. The pound fell for its lowest level for over a year. 26th of May, an official inquiry was set up under Lord Pearson to examine the Siemens case, but its report was rejected by the NUS. On the 20th of June, Wilson made a statement to Parliament in which he said the strike was being organised by a tightly knit group of politically motivated men who, as the last general election showed, utterly failed to secure acceptance of their views by the British electorate. He did not actually say that the organisers were communist, but it was obvious that he was strongly implying this. However, he didn't provide evidence for his claims. Wilson stepped up the pressure. Uh, in the end, he did name some names of suspected communists on the NUS executive. Eventually, the strike was called off on the 1st of July, but the episode left a sour taste from the trade union point of view. The strike was immediately followed by a sterling crisis in July, and because of the strike, exports had fallen in the previous month by approximately 20%, so the trade figures looked bad. Balance of payments problems and sterling crises were a big deal in the 60s in a way that doesn't really register in the same way today. Um, this is a big, complicated subject. I don't know if I can um, do it justice in the, in the time I have, and I realise the time I have is fast evaporating, but um, I'll try just to give you some sense of it. Um, so you've got balance of payments, which is essentially the difference in value between what we import and what we export. In those days, currency speculators paid a great deal of attention to these figures as they were seen as an indicator of confidence in sterling. The whole issue has a lot to do with fixed exchange rates. The UK was a member of the Bretton Woods system where the pound was fixed in value against other currencies. The parity was $2.80 for the UK 
from 1949 onwards. If Britain's economy went through a difficult period, international speculators would sell sterling, and in order to maintain the parity of $2.80, the Bank of England would have to buy sterling, and then in doing so, they would draw on UK reserves of gold and foreign exchange. So during a sterling crisis, these reserves were depleted, hence the Sunday Mirror's flippant headline, World Bankers, please note, Britain's reserves went up yesterday by one valuable cup. Um, now, there was an alternative approach to continually depleting our UK reserves. The pound could be devalued against other currencies. This would have the effect of making imports more expensive, but exports cheaper, and so it would have given a boost to exports. So, as I say, in July 66, the pound dropped dramatically, and there was tremendous pressure on the government. The cabinet became preoccupied on this question of whether or not the pound should be devalued. George Brown, who was Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, he had converted to this idea, and at one stage it looked like Chancellor James Callaghan had also converted to the idea. But Wilson was determined to resist this option, um, and he was resolute about defending the pound, partly for symbolic reasons. To him it was a symbol of national status, of Britain's role in the world as a key player. There were many tensions within ministerial circles that July. Wilson feared that a plot was being hatched against him. On the 12th of July, Callaghan told his cabinet about the seriousness of the crisis and he asked for cuts of 500 million in public spending. Eventually, the cabinet thrashed out the issue of devaluation, deciding against it on the 19th of July, and Callaghan introduced a tough package of deflation and austerity instead. There were huge cuts in public spending, uh, a 10% increase in excise and petrol duties, strict higher purchase restrictions, and a mandatory freeze on wages and prices for six months. The higher purchase restrictions were significant because this was the method by which most working class people bought cars, white goods, and televisions. You know, I mean, credit cards were a rarity. I think it's actually in '66 that Barclay card is first introduced, but... Overall, credit cards are a bit of a novelty at this time. You know, it's higher purchase is the main way to get goods on credit. So there's all these restrictions coming in, and this was the end of the glittering hopes surrounding Labour's National Plan for Economic Development, which had been launched in August 65 by George Brown. And that had forecast 3.8 annual growth for the whole period from 65 to 70. Well, all of that was out the window, really, now. Um, the Observer called the 20th of July the day it all stopped. And when Ray Davis came up with the line, save me, save me, save me from this squeeze for sunny afternoon, he could not have known the resonance that this would carry. In the same Sunday Mirror that reported England's World Cup glory, there were also some significant sentences in this article on page two. Wilson had just got back from... Uh, his uh, summit with uh, President Johnson, he comes straight back to watch the World Cup final. He was also facing a bit of a showdown about the wage and price freeze law with the unions. But also in this article it says, Labour MPs, among Labour MPs there was anger at Mr Wilson's renewed insistence that he will keep on Britain's world role east and west of Suez. Many Labour MPs protest that this is unrealistic at the time of a payments crisis. And just very briefly, in 66, there was a major review of UK defence policy led by Dennis Healy, who was Defence Minister. And it was announced, in 66, it was announced that the UK would retain its military bases in Southeast Asia, primarily in Malaysia, Singapore, but also in the Persian Gulf and the Maldives. But of course, the economic troubles just kept continuing. 
And in 67, November, you get the devaluation of the pound. They finally concede that's the best thing to do. They decide. Uh, so there's all these further pressures. And in the end, they sort of review, again, the defence review. <laughs> and they uh, announce the strategic withdrawal of British forces deployed east of Suez, spelling the end of a significantly worldwide military role for Britain. Also on the theme that 1966 may actually have been the worst of times, on the 12th of August 66, three police officers were murdered by Harry Roberts and two others in East Acton, sparking a wave of revulsion and outrage throughout the country. On the 21st of October, tragedy hit the Welsh mining village of Aberfan as a coal slag tip engulfed a school killing 116 children and 28 adults. The local community was devastated by the tragedy and the whole country was badly shocked by it. This is a letter to Harold Wilson from a member of the public and it says, you know, the whole world is suffering with the victims and relatives and no words can soothe the grief that is felt. Only prayer can aid at this time. In November... Kathy Come Home, starring Ray Brooks and Carol White, a BBC television play directed by Ken Loach about homelessness, had a huge impact on, on public opinion because of its grim realism. Now, the next, you know, the next slide may seem trivial by comparison to these other events, but by August 1966, even the swinging British pop scene seemed to be losing some of its fizz, commentators noted. The Beatles played their last concert on August the 29th at Candlestick Park, San Francisco. Some of the clubs had closed down, including the famous Cavern. There was a feeling that the British beat boom was coming to an end. With the deflation of the economy, there was less money in people's pockets, and some of the optimism had evaporated. The revolution seems to have spent its force, stated the Sunday Times. The age of pop was swinging to a stop. Except it wasn't. Um, it wasn't really. It's just that... Fantastic pop music was now pouring in from the US and was being warmly embraced by British pop fans. Some classic tracks from the West Coast shown here. Uh, the Monkees moved in to fill the vacuum created by the Beatles' withdrawal to the studio with some very well-crafted pop songs. And then you've got these fantastic records from Motown and also Stax, you know, these fantastic soul records like Reach Out, I'll Be There with fantastic vocal performance by Levi Stubbs. And it wasn't as if British pop acts um, completely dried up either, you know, inspiration-wise in the second half of 66, because there were still some really interesting, innovative, highly enjoyable singles uh, from The Who, The Rolling Stones, who got up in drag there to promote uh, Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadow, another great experimental record, um, Small Faces, Manfred Mann, The Kinks, uh, and Donovan with Sunshine Superman. Um, sorry, okay, so moving to a conclusion, um, we've seen that 66 was the year that England and the UK as a whole led the world in the fields of pop music, fashion, film and popular culture in general and of course England's winning the World Cup passed into instant legend. At the same time you've got economic crisis, industrial strife, social protest about Vietnam etc and Britain was re-evaluating its role in the world some would say, going into a sort of managed decline. Now, it's the fact that these two strands coexisted of optimism and struggle and the tension between them that interests me. 
Britain, Britain, may have be, Britain may have been about to scale down its world commitments, but it certainly punched above its weight when it came to popular culture. It's as if the full creative forces of the generation born just after the war, or a little earlier, had been unleashed, and they were not going to allow anything to rain on their parade. 1966 has always represented a very special era for me. I know you can't go through life gazing back at the past with rose-coloured spectacles. I realise that in many ways it was a far harsher world back then. There was a great deal of racial prejudice, and homosexuality was still a criminal offence, though campaigners were working for change, which came to a qualified extent in 1967. For me, as I'm sure you can tell, it's the music of this time that I am so in love with, US and British artists locked in this battle to produce the finest three-minute work of pop genius. And, you know, for many artists, each new single represented a progression from the last. The lyrics were more, getting more complex, the sounds ever more intricate, experimental with the shift to psychedelia. Uh, but, you know, when you, look at the, you hear these tracks, there's such a strong emphasis on melody and, um, you know, really memorable choruses and so forth. Um, so much of the music was imbued with an incredibly attractive optimism, even though some rather darker themes and more melancholic themes were beginning to emerge. The charts were stuffed full of classic records which have stood the test of time and are treasured by millions today. Will the same be true of the pop charts now, 50 years hence? I very much doubt it, I have to say. Um, by the end of 66, last couple of slides, I promise, by the end of 66, the British beat boom was over, the final signifier being that Ready, Steady, Go came to an end, but it's interesting to note that on the penultimate programme on December the 16th, Jimi Hendrix appeared performing Hey Joe, a taster of the musical riches that were going to come from him in 1967. Hendrix was an American, but it was England that embraced him fully first and recognised his musical genius. Mark Bolan also appeared on that edition, by the way, I found out. Very interesting. But it isn't just the pop music that I'm in love with from this era. It's the fantastic sense of style, too, whether it's the clothes or even the design of the post office tower, which, by the way, was officially open to the public in, in 66. Or Emma Peel and her powder blue Lotus Elan in The Avengers. Um, I gather they started filming in colour for the fifth series in 1966, so I can just about get away with including it. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.